If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to Great Reputations, our series exploring the divisive legacies of some of history's biggest names. In today's episode, we'll be discussing ancient Egyptian queen Cleopatra. Born in the 1st century BC, she became queen of the Ptolemaic Kingdom of Egypt in 51 BC, following the death of her father, initially with each of her brothers, although tension within the family led to civil war. Her relationships with prominent Roman figures Julius Caesar and Mark Antony have been the subject of much speculation and propaganda, both at the time and in the centuries since, as has her death, supposedly from an asp bite in 30 BC. Following her death, Egypt became part of the Roman Empire. She has become a cultural icon in the centuries since, with key works depicting her including William Shakespeare's Antony and Cleopatra and the 1963 film starring Elizabeth Taylor. More recently, the announcement of an upcoming biographical film sparked some debate by casting Israeli actor Gal Gadot in the title role. I'm Joyce Tilsley. I'm Professor of Egyptology at the University of Manchester. I'm Catherine Edwards. I'm Professor of Classics and Ancient History at Birkbeck, University of London. Thank you both so much. So we're talking today about Cleopatra, her life and her legacy, and I suppose some of the elements of her reputation that have been contested or proved challenging in subsequent centuries. Before we go on, would you both be up for just briefly setting out some of those elements? What are the big controversies about the way in which we now see Cleopatra? For me, I think the the main thing actually is a bit of an odd thing to start with, is that the whole scenario of her death is what everyone tends to fixate on. And how it was a sort of almost a display that she was killed by an asp and, and she committed suicide and so on. And there's not really a great deal of evidence to support the, the suicide by snake theory, certainly. Well, I, I guess for me, one of the, the really fascinating things about Cleopatra is the way in which she's so sort of tantalisingly hard to get at because she's mediated through all these stories written about her by, I mean, a lot of... Romans and Greeks primarily, they very much formed her, her later reputation. So we have this, uh, you know, Egyptian woman ruler whose reputation has been so much controlled by non-Egyptian males. Yes, before we sort of start going through her life, I thought it might be worth addressing those issues you've both raised directly. To what extent is our ability to accurately sketch Cleopatra's life clouded by myth and clouded by subsequent reimaginings or reinterpretations of her story? It's it's really difficult to try and get to know the real Cleopatra because when you look for the evidence, there's very little there, really. She ruled Egypt from Alexandria, but much of Ptolemaic Alexandria, because she was a member of the Ptolemaic royal family, has just vanished. It's gone under the sea or it's been built over. So there's very little archaeological evidence. There's a bit of written evidence, but not the sort of written evidence that we would like that explains things. There's some 
monumental inscriptions in Egyptian temples, there are coins, but that's about it. So actual facts to get hold of for Cleopatra, there's very little there. And we've managed to fill in the gaps in the story. We have the very bare bones and we've filled them in, as Catherine says, by referring to the works of, of classical authors and others who didn't even know her. So it's really hard. We've got one tantalising bit of eyewitness evidence in the letters of Cicero, who met Cleopatra in Rome in the 40s BCE and found her really annoying. He doesn't even talk about what she looked like. He just said, you know, her pride is really grating. That's really sort of the the extent of, of Roman eyewitness testimony. And otherwise, we've got these much, much later versions. Although some of the Roman material comes from writers who were there during Octavian Augustus's triumph when he celebrated the defeat of Cleopatra and Antony at the Battle of Actium in 31. So they talk about the triumph and poet Propertius talks about seeing the image of the Cleopatra's dead body that is paraded in the triumphal procession. There will be some people who are coming to this discussion not knowing very much about the real Cleopatra or the times in which she lived. So for people who might not know, can we sketch out what you think we need to understand about her family, her family dynamics, the kind of society into which she was born? I think it's important to remember that she wasn't born into the traditional Egyptian royal family that had existed for many, many centuries. She was a member of the Ptolemaic dynasty and they came to Egypt after the conquest of Alexander the Great and they had been ruling for about 300 years. But they were strangers. It it seems odd to say um, they were new to Egypt. It's a bit like saying that the current British royal family are German. They've been there a long time, but they did things differently. They were very strongly connected to the Hellenistic world rather than being traditional Egyptians. So you get Cleopatra, who is a member of this Macedonian royal family, ruling Egypt from Alexandria, which is a new city and sort of removed both from the classical world, but also removed from a lot of Egypt as well, which we we tend to forget. Alexandria was almost a land in its own right, and it was populated by a mixture of Greeks and Jews and native Egyptians, very different to the rest of Egypt and very different to the rest of the world. So it would be wrong to regard her as being a typical Egyptian pharaoh. I really like Joyce's analogy of the British royal family, but we'd also have to think of the British royal family still speaking German because the the Ptolemaic rulers of Egypt spoke Greek. And although Cleopatra herself does seem to have spoken the Egyptian language as well, interestingly. But I think the other thing that's really important about where Cleopatra fits in is thinking about the, the kind of power play of not only in what's going on in Egypt in terms of conflict within the Ptolemaic dynasty between siblings, and different, I haven't quite got my head around the Ptolemaic family tree because it's so complicated with lots of people with the same name, but they are perpetually at war with each other. And and in that war, they are also kind of trying to sometimes bring in individual parties like Cleopatra, are trying to get the help of of the Romans to prop them up in terms of their internal conflict within Egypt. Meanwhile, of course, the Romans are all fighting each other as well. So it all gets very complicated with sort of different Roman factions using Egypt and Egypt's enormous wealth, trying to, to shore up their own positions, and then the different Egyptian factions trying to use Roman military assistance to prop themselves up. So it's a complicated situation. Yeah, it is. It's it's 
Egypt's on the verge of bankruptcy when she comes to the throne, which is um, really important. And there's been a huge amount of infighting in the royal family because they have this tradition of brother-sister marriages. And rather than strengthening the royal family, this has really caused a lot of problems because brothers and sisters start killing each other in the hope that a pair of them will make it to the throne. And you get some periods in the Ptolemaic dynasty where there's nobody suitable to rule Egypt at all. It's really had a bad effect on, on the royal family. So when she comes to the throne, certainly Egypt is a landing crisis and there's a crisis going on all around it. And she's in a really, really difficult position. She was, in our terms, still very young when she first rose to a position of power. How did her early experiences shape her story, particularly given all this infighting and this tumult? And how has that also affected how she's now viewed, I suppose? Well, I mean, one thing to remember is that her father had himself been in difficulties in terms of his claim to power in Egypt, and he had used Roman support from Gabinius to prop himself up. So in a way, that was already part of Cleopatra's personal experience as kind of, you know, her father had had already sought help from the Romans previously. So I think that's kind of probably an element to bear in mind in terms of thinking about what options she's got. And she's also, I think, learnt that her elder sister rebelled against her father while he was in Rome and was eventually executed by her father. So I think one of the things that she's learnt also is that you can't really trust anybody, not even a close family member. You have to be very, very careful. So its I don't want to say it's kill or be killed in her family, but certainly you're in constant peril from the people who should be the most supportive of your family. You're not going to get much support from them. Do you think this formative shaping of her personality helps us make sense of her later decisions? I don't know. I, th- I think it possibly does, yes. I think it's certainly something that we have to bear in mind. Reading the Ptolemaic history, it is so confusing. It's really like like the worst sort of soap opera on the television. It's X kills Y and, and, and Z in, in return kills somebody else. And it doesn't seem to, as an outsider, there's a danger that we forget that these are actually real people. And we sort of treat them as almost as amusing, which obviously at the time it really would not have been amusing. So I think, yes, this constant air of uncertainty and danger... The idea that Egypt is in crisis and almost bankrupt and the idea that her father is deeply indebted in many ways to the Romans are certainly going to make her feel very insecure as she takes the throne with her brother. She never rules alone. You mentioned Caesar there and without wanting to fall into the trap of defining her story purely in terms of her relationships, we should talk about that relationship. And I suppose in terms of how she was viewed in Rome. How did it change how she was viewed? And to what extent has our view been shaped by Roman propaganda, I suppose? Well, I think Roman propaganda has played an absolutely enormous part in how we see Cleopatra. So she has that uh, early alliance, if you like, with Julius Caesar, which is seen as as kind of, in a sense, one Egyptian faction thinks they're doing Caesar a favour when they assassinate Pompey, who's Caesar's civil war rival. But then Caesar actually gets together with Cleopatra and in the hope that her forces are going to be helpful to him. So, in a sense, Cleopatra is one of several alliances, if you like, that that Caesar forges in other parts of the Mediterranean world in a period of extreme turbulence in Rome. I mean, Caesar's an incredibly deft politician until he alienates his competitors back in Rome in 44, when Cleopatra herself actually is in Rome at the time when Caesar's assassinated with her son Caesarion, who may or may not be the son of Julius Caesar. And she then leaves and goes back to Egypt. So we've got the perspective on Julius Caesar's career and where 
Cleopatra fits into that with her dramatic arrival wrapped up in a carpet when she's smuggled into the fort in Alexandria, a feature of the story that appears in every single movie representation of, of Cleopatra. And, and then kind of later on, we've got, after the conflict breaks out, a yet another round of civil conflict in the Roman world between Octavian, the heir of Julius Caesar, um, Mark Antony and Lepidus in alliance briefly, and then they fall out, as Roman leaders so often do. Antony is in the east. Cleopatra has this meeting with him at Tarsus. And we can see that, um, you know, that's often presented in the dramatic versions as them kind of falling in love. We could also see that in a very nakedly political way as, as Antony really wanting Cleopatra's resources for his planned campaign against the Parthians. The key thing to understanding the, the way that the Romans see Cleopatra is the, the kind of propaganda war, really, that Octavian, later called Augustus, manages against Cleopatra in alliance with Mark Antony. So many of the stories about Cleopatra, her extraordinary extravagance, her excessive sexuality and all the rest of it, all that is really targeted at doing down Mark Antony so that Augustus or Octavian, as he is called in the 40s and 30s, so that he can present himself as a sort of stalwart champion of virile Roman values who is totally different from that awful man, Antony, who's just lying around having sex in Egypt. I mean, I think she's quite useful to Octavian because she can be used as, as a reason for these upright Roman men deviating from the path. And then, of course, it's his duty to put things right. If she wasn't there, it might be harder to explain why he did some of the things he did. But she can be used in his propaganda quite successfully. And I think that's probably why her story survives, because in the greater scheme of things, it's not necessarily the, the most important story of his life. But she survives alongside him because she gives him a justification, particularly for getting rid of Mark Antony. Civil war is, is always deeply problematic in any society. The Romans find civil war very difficult to talk about. It's much easier if you can present that as war against a foreign a feminine enemy. And when we see sort of representations of the war in which Octavian triumphs over the East, it offers a fantastic sort of visual expression, really, of the rightness of his regime that serves to justify the imposition of, of autocracy on Rome. It's so interesting you mentioned there that fact this was projected as a feminine and then also separately you mentioned the fact this helped explain the some of more wayward, perhaps in inverted commas, behaviour. Was it coded explicitly in those terms as a cynical move even at this time? And what does that tell us about the society of the time? I, th I think so, because Cleopatra was so very different to your standard Roman woman, or at least what the standard Roman woman was believed to be like. I mean, I've no idea what they're actually like. I don't suppose they all stayed inside weaving the entire time, but that basically is how they're supposed to behave in public, and she's not modest or retiring. She's a monarch, which is not a good thing in, in Rome. She comes forward, she presents herself constantly as, as a spectacle or a display. Everything she does is done to excess. She's obviously 
not worried at all about sleeping with married Roman men. It's not a problem to her. And she's just basically everything that the Romans dislike. And they can roll this all up together and it makes her into a very, very suitable enemy. And it also explains why people who should be heroes like Julius Caesar and Mark Antony have something to do with her because you can't resist this. This isn't even fighting fair. It's not male fighting. It's devious Eastern feminine fighting. And she has these wiles that she will use so you can explain why they didn't necessarily always behave in the typical Roman way themselves. I think if they hadn't had it, you know, they'd have almost been tempted to invent her because she was so useful to them. I think that's a really interesting way of seeing it. And, and, and it's also, I think, interesting to think about what effect that has back in Rome in terms of the kind of the pressure on Roman women to behave in this more respectable way. So you find Augustus, once he's established as emperor, engaging in, in legislation to make adultery a criminal offence, for instance, and punishing women who are seen as guilty of sexual misbehaviour. That's not the way for proper Roman matrons to behave. It's also really interesting that when we were talking about her relationship with Mark Antony, you mentioned, Catherine, that in some senses this could be portrayed as a sort of a nakedly political relationship, but it is, in subsequent portrayals of this story, always stereotypically viewed as a romantic relationship. Do you think that this focus on her romantic life has overshadowed other key aspects of her story? Well, undoubtedly it has, yeah. I mean, it's an aspect that is kind of strongly developed in Plutarch's life of Mark Antony. Antony's devotion to Cleopatra is what causes him to, to flee like in, in a cowardly manner from the Battle of Actium. And then we have this, this, this sort of grand scene. Cleopatra sends word that she's committed suicide to Mark Antony, causes him to take his own life, and then his dying body is transported to her in the tomb and they have this sort of joint sort of suicide. You know, Joyce mentioned that earlier on, that that, that has become the sort of the big story the politics of the whole thing has kind of been very much sidelined by that. And and I think then the story becomes very easily appropriated, not just in terms of grand romance, but also in terms of, of sort of symbolising the relationship between East and West. So you get interesting uh, appropriations of the story in colonial context, if you like. The idea of, of this seductive Eastern woman who kind of unmans masculine Roman men is finally defeated by another even more masculine Roman man. I mean, that, that allows the romance to be appropriated and politicised, but taking us away from what the actual politics of the time may have been. It's interesting if we read about her in the works of the Arab scholars who don't have this very Western tradition, the Roman tradition, and they tend to see her as much more of an intelligent woman. She's an author. She makes much more calculated decisions. Whereas we, because we've been influenced by Plutarch and then on by Shakespeare, we tend to see her as an emotional person who's guided by her heart and not her head. But actually, I, I've always think that the two, I don't know about you, Catherine, but the two alliances she makes with Julius Caesar and Mark Antony are very sensible political decisions. She couldn't have known that Julius Caesar was going to be assassinated and she picked the wrong side with Mark Antony. But you probably would do on paper. He was the better, the better choice, I think. And she went for the better choice. It just happened to be wrong. So we've just got into the habit of thinking of her as, as not a particularly intelligent person, but a, a person driven by emotion rather than her brain. But I suspect that she was really clever. She wouldn't have stayed on the throne as long as she did if she wasn't really clever. Are there any other aspects of the way her story is viewed outside of the West that we should take on board? But one thing that interests me is how we've actually depicted her in the West as opposed to how she probably would have been in real life in that artists have been inspired by the story of Cleopatra 
from quite early on, but they've always tended to depict her as a sort of contemporary beauty because this assumption, again, that she's beautiful. We're nowhere told that she's beautiful. We're told that she has a lovely voice, but we're not told that she's beautiful. And she's obviously massively charismatic, I think. But artists have depicted her with their own ideas of beauty because they can't imagine that she would have been able to attract these men unless she was beautiful, slightly forgetting the fact that she's also ruling a potentially very, very wealthy country. So she had different attractions. And we've almost fallen into the trap if we're imagining her far more Western-looking than she almost certainly was. And this is something that is now starting to be reversed a bit, but it's something that's gone on for quite a long time. Yes, it's sort of interesting seeing the controversies over the casting of Cleopatra in the film that is due to be released this year, I think, that that was quite uh, hotly debated on social media. For people who might not know, can you just really briefly run us through what those controversies were? Okay, well, there were various possible names, I think, thrown out for who was going to play Cleopatra in this new movie. And in the end, the actress Gal Gadot was chosen, who's an Israeli actress. And obviously, that is potentially problematic in the Arab world that this Egyptian queen is being portrayed by someone who's done military service in Israel. So that's a whole other political dimension, of course. Um, and it is this time someone who's played Wonder Woman previously, perhaps someone who's perhaps not Anglo-Saxon looking at least, but is, is perhaps doesn't correspond to ideas of, of what an Egyptian queen might potentially have looked like. I think it's a shame that they didn't have the courage and they would never do this, I know, because it's Hollywood, but to go for someone who was not necessarily good looking, but intelligent looking, because I've said that we don't really know what Cleopatra looked like and, and we don't to a large extent, but we do have her coins. And on her coins, and it's really difficult to tell because obviously they're not very big and it's very difficult to engrave a coin, but she doesn't look particularly good looking. She's not in modern ideas of beauty anyway. It would be nice if they'd had the courage to break away from that and really show her as primarily a diplomat, which is how I tend to see her, rather than someone who's so good looking that, you know, they could get away with anything. But I, yeah, that's never going to happen though, is it? <laughs> well, I wanted to ask you two about this because we've we've already in this conversation mentioned a whole range of sort of almost mythic elements, her being rolled into a carpet, her being incredibly beautiful, her suicide, which have become a sort of a mythic shorthand for certain values, I suppose, you know, beauty, doomed romance. Is there any way that we can start to redress that balance? How can we best do that? I think it would be difficult to do that because it's so deeply ingrained into popular culture. But one thing that we could very much pin our hopes on as, as Egyptologists, I'm an Egyptologist rather than a classical historian, is that there are ongoing excavations in Alexandria and in the waters around Alexandria. And maybe one day we will find more factual information because that's really what we're lacking. And if we could find a few more facts, then we might be able to revise our entire understanding of Cleopatra and her family. So fingers crossed one day we'll do that. We haven't even got a tomb. We don't know where it was. Just finding a bit more information would really, really help us. Are there any aspects of her life and times that we've not yet talked about that you think we should discuss? In terms of her later reputation, I suppose we perhaps haven't touched so much on the way in which she's been appropriated for the spectacular so much by the film industry, particularly 
in fact, throughout the 20th century and into the 21st, as we see imminently. Back in 1908, there was a film actually made by my great-grandfather's film company in Hollywood, the Vitagraph Film Company, made a film of, of Shakespeare's Antony and Cleopatra. It was a silent film, so quite a challenge. So that was in 1908. But there was, you know, many, many more visual representations of Cleopatra because the, the sort of the, the appeal of, of the kind of monumental Egyptian landscape, for one thing, and all that kind of exotic dress, the, the jewels and so on, associated with the Egyptian pharaoh's court in the Greco-Roman tradition, where it's kind of celebrated as uh, the exotic other. So, obviously, the 1963 movie with Elizabeth Taylor that bankrupted its studio, the most expensive film ever made. But it was some really interesting earlier examples, like the 1913 film, Marc Antonio e Cleopatra, it's an Italian film that was really sort of exploring the story of Antony and Cleopatra in the context of Italian colonial ambitions for invading Libya. So, that gave a whole different dimension, really, to the story of, of Antony and Cleopatra in that context. We have talked a bit about this, specifically, I suppose, in the Roman context, but do we have any other sense of how Cleopatra was viewed while she was alive by her contemporaries? It's very difficult to tell how she was viewed within Egypt, and I would suspect that in Alexandria it's different to outside Egypt. But we get a sense that outside Egypt, the Egyptians at first really didn't like her particularly she was seen as siding with her father and with the romans but gradually they seem to have liked her more and more so by the time she died she seems to have been accepted as someone who was trying to to ward off the romans within alexandria the situation is probably slightly different because they're a very rebellious mob in alexandria and they feel they have to have a, a right to say in their rulers, mainly because there's a, quite a high number of Greeks living there and Greeks aren't particularly comfortable with a monarchy. But again, you get the sense that she's been able to win them over. That might just be because the alternative being under Roman control is so much worse that she's seen as the, the lesser of two evils. But she does seem to have turned things around in the same way that she seems to have turned around the country from being bankrupt to having to be much more prosperous. She seems to be able to persuade people to like her. It seems to be one of her skills that People on the whole, Cicero and possibly Octavian accepted, do seem to like her. I mean, actually, even amongst the Romans, we find that the attitude to Cleopatra is really quite complicated. Yes, we've got in a, uh, Cicero and Octavian expressing disapproval very strongly in Octavian's case. But actually, some of the poets writing in the time of Augustus, who lived through the Battle of Actium in some cases, I mentioned earlier Propertius talking about watching her, the effigy of the dead Cleopatra in, in Augustus's triumphal procession. But there's a sense in which there's a kind of respect for Cleopatra, for her bravery. I mean, taking her own life in the way that she did is, is something Romans actually rather admire in defeated um, enemies. So the poet Horace, for instance, in one of his odes, talks about celebrating the defeat of Egypt and the victory of Octavian Augustus. But the poem concludes with some, you know, an expression of admiration for the nobility of this woman who's shown such bravery. And Propertius too, although he apparently criticises Cleopatra, in fact, he calls her the, the whore queen, the meritrix Regina. But he does that in a poem where he's saying, well, of course, I'm under the thumb of my mistress because all these other people, look at Mark Antony, he was kind of under the thumb of Cleopatra. So in a way, he's identifying with Mark Antony and I suppose acknowledging the power of that a, a woman 
like Cleopatra, can exercise over a Roman man. And that's his excuse for not giving up his life of love and going off to join the army. I suspect this might be almost impossible to do, given how many different elements we've sort of already talked about. But if we were to attempt to plot on a graph, some sort of graph, how her reputation rose and fell throughout her life and afterwards, would we be able to do that? And what sort of shape would it take? I think it would depend where you were standing from your viewpoint. Certainly in Egypt, it would start quite low from the point that she takes over from her father with her, her brother Ptolemy, who is the preferred, most people seem to prefer him as the monarch, even though he's considerably younger than she is. And it, I would say after a faltering start, it slowly increases so that by the time that she, she dies, she's got the support of the people. And then after that, it continues to grow. Certainly so that today, for many people in Egypt, Cleopatra is a symbol of Egyptianness and, and nationality and someone who is prepared to do her utmost to protect Egypt, to protect her country. So she's, well, certainly she's better known worldwide than she was when she died, but I, was, I suspect she's better admired worldwide than when she died as well. But obviously, from the Roman perspective, it would be different. <laughs> Yes, I mean, from the Roman perspective, presumably at the point when they're fighting the Battle of Actium, Cleopatra is pretty much demonised. I mean, after she's been defeated, there is this kind of grudging admiration for the defeated enemy. And there's even Julius Caesar puts a golden statue of Cleopatra in the Temple of Venus that he has constructed, as he claims to be descended from Venus. And Cassius Dio, who's writing in the early 3rd century, talks about this statue and, and how it shows that Cleopatra is still respected, even though she's a defeated enemy. So the Romans do kind of have the sense that, you know, that some admiration is due to her. Of course, Egypt by this point has been part of the Roman Empire for some considerable time. There is a sort of sense that Egypt is, is kind of distinctive, nevertheless. To try to return, I suppose, to the woman at the heart of this story, is it possible to have any sense at all of how she hoped he remembered herself? don't think that we have enough information to say that. But one thing that we, we can say, and one thing that we haven't actually touched on that I think is actually an important aspect of Cleopatra, and it's something that we almost completely overlook, where we focus on her beauty and her heart and all this, but she was actually, by the standards of her time, a really good mother. And she really, really tried to protect her children. And one thing that she did try to do was to protect their futures when she realised that she didn't have a future. Her eldest son, Caesarian, was probably a lost cause by that time because he was too closely connected to Julius Caesar and he was an adult. But the younger children, she had three children by Mark Antony and she did a lot to try and protect them. It didn't really work and she ended up committing suicide. But at least that would have been an element of her legacy that she would have been able to save. But for the rest, we don't really have, have much idea at all what she intended, just because we've lost all the archaeology and most of the writings. Something that interests me about this story is the persistence of the ways in which she's viewed almost entirely through a specific lens and the sort of the gendered and I suppose the elements of nationhood and ethnicity that have become attached to that. Does it tell us something about the currents of history that those ways of seeing her have been so persistent? Well, I, I mean, I suppose that the story of Cleopatra has been very much susceptible to being woven into Orientalist narratives about the relationship between the West and the East and the, the, the way in which the, the feminine and the Eastern are conflated is, is very much having a female ruler from Egypt 
allows the personification almost of that kind of way of of seeing things. Very interesting. There's a, a wonderful medal struck to commemorate Napoleon's invasion of Egypt that shows Napoleon as if he's a, a, a Roman general and Egypt is shown as this sort of half-naked woman reclining. So although that's a personification of Egypt, we're immediately taken back to the story of Antony and Cleopatra as it was so often represented visually as well as in literature. So I, I think that illustrates the, some of the persistence of, of the kinds of, of, of binaries that you alluded to there. We have talked a little bit about this. I wondered whether you thought that there are the roots here of some of the ways in which female rulers are seen and perhaps even judged in subsequent centuries. Do you think that's a fair point? It's sort of interesting to think about how Shakespeare's Antony and Cleopatra is produced in the context of the court of James I, where you've previously had a female, very powerful female ruler who's now been succeeded by a new king, and that some of the ways in which Cleopatra's authority is, I mean, obviously Cleopatra in Shakespeare is very complicated, but aspects of her problematic power in a way could be read as politically significant, I think, in the context of the new sort of Jacobean regime that succeeded the Elizabethan one. It just seems to happen quite often, doesn't it, with female rulers, that they attract attention and not necessarily for their own achievements, but for the wrong things. And we focus on the fact that they're female rather than the fact that they are rulers. The Egyptians themselves didn't do this. I mean, Cleopatra's Ptolemaic and is right at the end of the dynastic age, but throughout ancient Egypt, it was possible to have a female pharaoh. And once they were crowned, that was it. They were the king, the female king. And the Egyptians were okay with that. But we suspect that there are a lot of women who actually ruled Egypt on behalf of younger sons and who did all the work, but are completely lost in history and we can't see them. So the few that actually come to the fore as female rulers, there are very few of them. So certainly in Egypt, Cleopatra is, is one of the a very few after hundreds and hundreds of kings that we focus on her. And for some reason, we choose to focus on the things that don't matter rather than the things that did matter at the time. Are there any other aspects of her life or her times or her legacy that you'd like to recover or that you'd like to sort of shift our focus onto? I'm quite interested in the way that she uses religion to boost her position because throughout her life she refers to herself as the living version of, of the goddess Isis who is an increasingly important goddess at this time and when she has her son Caesarian he takes the form of, of the god Horus. Isis is a single mother, effectively, because she bears a son to the god Osiris, but Osiris is dead and goes away. So she's essentially a single mother raising a son to be the king of Egypt. So I don't think it's a coincidence that after Cleopatra has had her son, who doesn't have any obvious father, but we assume it's Julius Caesar, she then feels that she can get rid of the brother who is technically her husband and become this single mother raising the next pharaoh of Egypt. I think it's interesting because we quite often regard the Ptolemies as very remote from traditional Egyptian religion, but this is pure traditional Egyptian religion. 
And it's something that would have resonated, I think, very much with the, the native Egyptian population. They would have very much understood this symbolism here. And again, it's like a motherhood. It doesn't really fit with the idea of somebody who's a very loose person who's just constantly seducing men and enjoying sex. But actually, there's a lot of deep thought underpinning all of this. And we, we tend to look over it and not recognise it perhaps for what it is. And that's very interesting that Joyce emphasises motherhood and religion. Some of the representations of Cleopatra in the Arab world in more recent periods actually do place an emphasis on that. So I think Mohammed Shorki's play, The Death of Cleopatra from, I think, 1927, has a Cleopatra that is kind of, in some ways, constructed in opposition to the Shakespearean Cleopatra. And she is, you know, very much focused on her children, very much focused on uh, having the right kind of relationship with the gods. She's a modest woman and, and kind of concerned about her nation. So it's, although, you know, she is criticised by other Egyptians for her dalliance with Mark Antony, you know, a lot of much more positive elements of her also are stressed in that play. Yeah, it's such a shame that Depending where you are, say in the West, we tend to only see one version of Cleopatra, whereas actually there are other versions out there. And if we could see all the versions of Cleopatra, we'd get a much more rounded, not necessarily accurate view of her. I'm not saying one is more accurate than the other, but at least it makes us think and not just accept what we're told from, from Shakespeare. How do you think Cleopatra might be seen in 50 years' time? That's a very difficult question. I think we will see her pretty much as we see her today for most people. But I think that we're making inroads into looking at her differently, particularly we're questioning what she should look like, as we've already discussed, what her heritage is. We don't actually know her parentage. We know her father. We don't know her mother and we don't know his, his parentage. So, you know, we don't really know what she looked like. I think we'll respect her more as we get more accustomed to the idea that women can do things and can rule. I know this sounds a bit ridiculous because obviously we've known this for years, but we're still sort of stuck in this idea that if she's a woman and she's she's important, that the beauty matters and the heart matters. I hope we'll focus more on the head and try and investigate more of the motives and, and look at what she did rather than how we think she behaved. But I don't know. I don't know. It's difficult to predict, isn't it? Let's hope Egyptologists dig up some exciting new evidence that will help us with that. Do you think that we should judge people from the past by the standards of today? I am not sure that it's the historian's business to be judging individual people. I think as a historian, I'm here to try to explain events, systems, structures in the past. We might want to pass judgment on particular systems and structures, but I don't think we need to pass judgment on particular individuals, and particularly not when we're talking about the very remote past where we have so very little information about any of the individuals that we're looking at. I mean, we've got nothing Cleopatra wrote. We've got nothing written about her by her direct contemporaries apart from a tiny reference in Cicero and a few bits of Latin poetry. I mean, how do we judge an individual on, on the basis of that evidence base? And then obviously a lot of history is written much later by people who had all sorts of biases. Yes, I agree. It's really difficult when you're considering ancient history because we just don't have enough information to even tell anything remotely resembling a, a biography of someone to, to allow us to judge from. So the best we can hope to do is to set them into their context and, and present the facts. But judgment shouldn't really come into it at this level. It's different with recent history. I think. But in the ancient world, it's just impossible for us to do that. And also, we're, we're too burdened with what came next. We've got so, so much hindsight as to what happened. It's very difficult for us to see things as clearly as perhaps we should do. 
That was Joyce Tildesley in conversation with Catherine Edwards talking to me, Matt Elton. And don't forget you can hear more episodes in this series by heading to historyextra.com forward slash great hyphen reputations. Thank you.